Hello and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm James. And I'm Nick. And together, we're inviting you to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge. Just like you, we have questions about the world. Deceptively simple questions. So one series at a time, just as fast as our little brains will allow, we'll bring together the best and the brightest to talk about these simple questions. In this first series, we're talking about climate change. Climate change is likely to affect almost every area of our lives like a toddler with sticky fingers. So in this fourth episode of the series, we'll explore how we can sustainably feed our growing population. Um, anything particularly exciting coming up in the episode, Nick? Well, besides your millet jokes, um, there was an exciting line about um, Singapore and their sort of ambitious plans to grow more of their own food by 2030. Can't wait. So, Nick, who were we talking to in this episode? Well, we talked to a historian of science and technology. Hello, I'm Helen Ann Curry. A plant scientist. Hello, I'm Giles Aldroyd. And a development economist. I'm Shaila Jafanel. We began by asking... Let's start with you, Helen. Can you tell us a story about the evolving relationship between humans and farming and why food production is relevant to climate change? I think a good place to start with that question is really in the the early 20th century. And we can take a long view, obviously, on the history of farming and its relationship to climate. And there would be a lot to say there. But a lot of the most significant changes are ones that have happened in the past hundred years or so in terms of the way in which farming has become tied up, especially with the, the use of fossil fuels. So we can think about the way in which we uh, use oil now in terms of mechanized equipment. We can think of the way in which synthetic fertilizers are produced using highly energetic processes and the ways in which maybe even the the foods that we eat are packaged and where those packaging uh, materials come from and and how they're made and, and the ultimate effects that they have on the environment. And so uh, all of these things that I've just mentioned, uh, the intense mechanization, the rising use of synthetic fertilizers, the industrialization of processing and packaging, these are all things that happened really in, in, the, in the past hundred years. And they have made or contributed to making agriculture a, a very, very fossil fuel intensive activity. And that means that the way that we produce our food is a contributor to climate change and has direct effects on that. So thinking about that sort of farming and food production, where does the sort of calorific crossover, if you will, sort of point, you know, where the point where we're reaching a population size, but are we sort of eating more now than we ever have before, if that makes sense? I think I might answer it from uh, the point of view of what we know today about why we're getting fatter as a species. That might be one way of looking at it. And that might give people the thought that, well, if you're getting fatter, we're eating more. I think we're eating probably more. There is more food, but we're eating more of the wrong kind of thing. And even if we ate less, we need to eat far less. So we're eating far more polished rice, polished wheat. The cereal intake in our bodies is, is increasing as a proportion of others, not just in absolute terms, but because they're polished. The point I was making about sugars, they 
burn very quickly and we have a huge sugar buzz in our body. And that's before you even think of the consumption of sugar that goes on with it. So what's happening in our bodies is the insulin system, that system that breaks down the, the, the sugars, uh, gets overloaded and it goes haywire, which is why we're now seeing obesity even in countries which have a, a lower income level, because we've all moved to this diet, which is um, invariably overloaded with, with processed foods, particularly processed carbs. And that's really uh, problematic because it completely skews the micronutrient balances, the vitamins and the minerals that we need in our bodies. And so we're certainly using the calories in a more uh, um, problematic way so that we're eating more food, but we are now have um, so 70% of the diseases that affect human beings globally now is a consequence of our lifestyle. Uh, not not of infectious diseases. And that, again, in, in um, I agree entirely with what Helen says, is a consequence of the last hundred years of the particular focus that we've had in agricultural systems. Quickly, to pick up on that one, you said the term polished. Does that mean sort of processed? Yes. So you can look at brown rice and white rice. They're the same thing, <laughs> except brown rice has some of the cover layers over the, the internal kernel of the grain still on it. Uh, and so brown, that's why brown bread, uh, when you eat brown bread versus white bread, they're the same thing, but they're not the same in terms of how the body breaks them down. So the more layers you have over your seeds, uh, the slower the body breaks it down. Therefore, the release of sugars is slower. So if I can jump in, I, I, I wanted to just pick up on the, the earlier statements Helen made about the sort of massive transitions that we've seen in the last hundred years. And in many ways that um, adds to all of that shift in the diet. So the way I like to think of it is that our the way we've solved problems in agriculture in the last hundred years, we've been extremely dependent on the chemical industry and on mechanization that's massively changed how we grow our crops. So heavy use of inorganic fertilizers, we control pests through chemical additives, pesticides, insecticides, and we also control weeds through herbicides. So we've seen a real massive uptake in the use of chemicals in our agricultural systems and a large amount of mechanization. And that's really massively pushed up productivity um, that has kept pace with a lot of the increased demand from the global population. But as uh, both Shalaja and Helen have highlighted, it's also changed, shifted our diets. The other big change that it's had is that food has gotten cheaper and people and industries have got become much more wasteful. So, I mean, as a scientist, I find that very frustrating because we're doing a lot of work to try to increase the productivity of the system. And if all we're doing is just creating more work, more food that gets thrown away, that's the last thing I want to do with all the effort that we're putting in. So just to go back on the uh, the couple points. So the inorganic uh, fertilizers you're talking about, that that's basically not natural poop right we're talking about exactly here just... so when we talk about fertilizers you've got the organic fertilizers which will be human waste animal waste um compost uh, these kind of things which they have they have um uh, high concentrations of these critical nutrients nitrogen and phosphorus um, which really are the key components that um, plants need to to maintain productivity but really the, the most effective or efficient way of putting those nutrients into the crops is just to apply those nutrients directly. So we mine phosphates, mostly from Morocco as rock phosphate. You process it into a form that's easily available to the plants. And then we're using burning a lot of fossil fuels to chemically fix um, nitrogen from the atmosphere, converting it into ammonia, which is a form of nitrogen that plants can use. 
in the Western world or the sort of developed world, we're using an awful lot. 95% of our agricultural systems are using these inorganic fertilizers to drive up their crop production. And a very small proportion of the um, agricultural system is still reliant on the organic fertilizers and manures uh, compost to, to drive up production. So we've been talking a little bit about the foods that we, that we do eat. And Shailaja was pointing out that in many ways we're eating some of the wrong foods. But thinking about crops in particular, um, what are the main crops that we currently rely on globally? So, so what is it that we're eating? I can um, ask, answer that. There's a very small handful of crops that the majority of people are eating. So uh, maize, wheat, rice, soy, canola are really the sort of major staple crops. And then they, those same crops are also underpinning the, the, uh, the feed for animals. So the chickens and pigs uh, that we're eating are also being fed from those big staple crops. So we have a real dominance in the agricultural system in a few major staple crops. That's not the normal situation. Maybe Shailaja can um, comment on this, but in the in, in sub-Saharan Africa, you see a much more diverse array of crops, although even there you see a dominance in uh, production of a few staples like maize or green banana. The typical plate that we have at the moment that we're eating is about 14 to 15 uh, single uh, uh, products from plants, uh, whereas there are hundreds of varieties that form uh, a more traditional uh, aspect of eating. So uh, in the UK, I mean, we do have this, except we've forgotten about it. So people eat oats for breakfast. That's a different kind of cereal. And uh, going back to Helen's point earlier on, you have oats with apples. You don't necessarily want to put sugar. You've got the apple sugar. These are all different kinds of release uh, in terms of sugars, but it's not just carbs. It's also the link with uh, the importance of protein and the importance of fats, but fats in the form that are better for the body. Uh, so not hydrated and not, hy not hydrogenated fats, uh, fats that can be used more more effectively, like olive oil is better than, than using um, other kinds of fats in terms of the way it, uh, it breaks down in our body. So absolutely the case. Um, and it is also, unfortunately, even in Southeast Asia, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, which have had a broader set of, of, of cereals, of, of, of vegetables, of nuts and seeds, they've also become pulled in by the end of the 20th century to that same global value chain of food. And they are forgetting uh, the systems that they had of production. This links to the point I was making about health. So in our research, what we're looking at is food production, food consumption, and the implications on human health. And one of the features that we're seeing is that um, the idea of food as fuel alone, rather than food as healing, uh, is also uh, something that uh, has increasingly been forgotten. And often different kinds of food. So I. I'm also interested in rice and other kinds of cereal, which have a variety that we've forgotten. So you've got a black rice. Um, I love black rice, bibimbap, South Korean black rice. It's delicious, but it has a different purpose. It has a different uh, effect on the human body. And so in many historical systems, and now we're working with communities that both collect seeds and have a history of understanding where they come from within the same crop. There's a huge set of health system work that we could be engaging with, which I hope, as Giles says, means that people won't want to look at chemical fertilizers because the value is in the natural system. 
one of the things that I think is is really telling or a, a, a data point that's really telling with respect to some of these issues that um, we've just been discussing are the, the data on how at the national level diets have shifted in the past 50 years. And so what you see is that more or less across the board, diets have diversified in the sense that people are eating more different crop foods, but around the world, people have converged on the same crop foods. And so we have seen, a, a, in, a, in a way, a kind of globalization of diets. And so at this one level, it looks like things are differentiating in terms of what uh, you know the average national uh, eater would be able to access. But truly around the world, it's, it's become extremely limited in comparison to, as Shailaja has said, the, the thousands of edible plants that we, that we have eaten uh, over the course of, of human history uh, and that we could pe- potentially be developing as crops today. So that, that small list that, that Giles mentioned, maize, rice, wheat, etc., that's now increasingly, you know, the crops being eaten by a larger and larger proportion of the global population. Is that right? Yes, but also it's less and less varieties of these crops. It's not that rice, wheat okay. and maize are a problem. It's We've only got particular kinds. So here's, you know, we, we may use only two or three of the varieties that exist from a much bigger, bigger collection. Mm. And we've forgotten these. I mean, in, in 1996, there was a wonderful three volume book, and I'm sure Helen has more to say, The Lost Crops of Africa. And in it, it mm. said sorghum. And I said, you know, sorghum, we would think, oh, we know sorghum, it's what you brew beer with, but it's, it's an important millet. There were a hundred and seventy-five varieties that they identified in sub-Saharan Africa, but there were five seventy-one uh, actual cultivars, so they could do it as in you don't uh, uh, use the seed, but you you uh, you 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 um, replicated vegetatively. So there is so much that has exists in the system that we have forgotten, and I think it's it's this this funneling into a few uh, varieties that's hugely problematic and we haven't even said in relation to climate change but they become much more vulnerable if there's a change we need a large gene pool of each of of the species to be able to be robust and resilient going forward Helen maybe you just summarize what is so important about maintaining uh, a wide genetic diversity in these crops well, and I'll, I'll very much hope that Giles jumps in here um, as the crop <laughs> scientist. Um, but one of the arguments that's generally given is that as we have produced crops for more specialized agricultural systems, so or maybe it's not even specialized, but in a sense, um, made more uniform uh, so that the the inputs that we put in are, are tightly controlled, inputs meaning pesticides or uh, Uh, fertilizers, or um, as we've developed crops that are particular for mechanized agriculture, we've we've made them more and more the same. Um, But the environment around us doesn't stay the same, that Mm -hmm. insect pests and pathogens change, uh, the climate changes, as as we all um, are talking about right now. And so um, being able to go back and tap into the genetic diversity that exists in a crop, but maybe doesn't exist in the specific varieties that are being planted today 
is thought to be a really important insurance policy for agriculture moving forward. Helen's exactly right. That, that natural diversity that sits in our crop plants, we have been very reliant on it, particularly over the last hundred years to underpin the development of our crops with um, plant breeding to optimize performance of those crops. And going forwards within that genetic diversity of our crops is a lot of important diversity that we're going to need in order to adapt to a changing climate. And associated with a changing climate, we always think of drought and temperature, but a very significant change is, is a shift in pests and pathogens. So the species that can survive here in the UK, for instance, will change with the changing climate. So we'll see different insect pests arriving that become new problems to our crop plants that historically were not. Uh, and so we really are highly dependent on the natural diversity that is present in those crop species in order to find solutions from breeding uh, to provide resistance to those emerging problems. There's also another feature about how we consider agriculture. As we go to single species, we regard the soil within which uh, plants grow as somehow part of the inputs that we use. We're creating, it's like baking a cake that, you know, soil is like an egg, you add it in. But actually the soil is part of the natural ecosystem. It's it's the world on which in which we live and on which we live. And, and the quality of the soil changes hugely. And, and in, the, in the last 100 years, particularly if I think of uh, the last 50 years, the Green Revolution, the high-yielding varieties in South Asia, it fundamentally changes the nature of the soil. So it becomes totally dependent on a set of chemical inputs. And it can then only have a fewer number of the species that grow. So there's a kind of interactive process between what we're doing in economics, call it path dependency. You do something and therefore you do more of the same and you forget there are other channels through which you can operate. And then if you have a collapse, uh, because, you know, the, that particular variety is susceptible, you don't have that fallback position. And that's why things like seed banks are so important. I'm just imagining now trying to make a cake with 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 soil instead of an egg. <laughs> well, think of chocolate. Think chocolate soil. That should might be. <laughs> okay, time for a quick cake break. Maybe a dirt drizzle cake or a Victoria compost sponge. We don't judge. Anyway, thing number one: humans eat food and have been eating food for a long time. Now, that is an earth-shattering contribution right there, James. Thank you very much. This is how I earn my living. But the point is, why is food all of a sudden relevant to climate change? Well, what these guys are telling us is that most of the significant changes to how we produce our food happened in the last 100 years, and that farming has become more and more tied up with the use of fossil fuels. Think of all the mechanised equipment, mass production of synthetic fertilisers, aka not poo, and food packaging. This has made some food cheaper, but producers and consumers are sometimes more wasteful as a result. If it isn't silver bullets, it's waste of one sort or another. I mean, it was Hughes, smelly brown carbon in episode two, and now not poo fertilizers this week. I can't believe my mum listens to this. So back to food. Okay, so anything else about how we're eating nowadays that might be a cause for concern? Uh, yes, unfortunately, uh, we eat lots of meat too much meat really. It's not always the broad category of thing we eat but also the specific types. So for example, rice and wheat, great. Polished rice and wheat, not so great. Um, and to me, polishing rice sounds like a cruel and unusual punishment. Um, and sugar. 
too much sugar, as my dentist is only too aware. Yeah, so Shalaja mentioned well, that a whopping 70% of diseases affecting humans globally are consequences of lifestyle, including how and what we eat. And what are we eating? I guess we haven't been clear yet. Yeah, so the major crops worldwide are maize, wheat, rice, soy and canola. We eat those, but also the animals we eat eat those things too. Um, but Helen pointed out that although individuals around the world might be eating more diverse diets, and note by the way that diverse doesn't necessarily mean healthy, so despite this there's actually much less diversity worldwide when it comes to the crops which are being grown. Which is not, unfortunately, a good thing as the crops can be more vulnerable, for example, to disease or pets, when there are fewer varieties of each species. Pets? Pets, Nick? Is that really what you mean? Like, like stray cats? Pets? No, pests. Of course, pests. And nobody wants a sick soya bean. I want to come back to um, risk. And I want to ask which of our foods, which perhaps of the crops that we eat now, are at risk um, as climate change develops, you know, which might we struggle to grow if the temperature rises or, um, or they, you know, they, they suffer a blight or there is an increased prevalence of pests or something like this? I think it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's less a sort of perception that there's a, a certain crops that are at global risk, um, rather that the, the crops that we're used to growing in our local areas are at risk. So, you know, as the temperature rises in the UK, it might be harder to sustain um, some of the fruit trees and the, the varieties of apples that we are very familiar with. You know, it's something like an apple is, uh, it's around for a long time and it has to then be resistant to the changes in the climate that are happening over whatever, however long that orchard is, is, is in existence. Um, but so it's more that we might see a shift in certain crop in the ability to grow certain crops in certain regions, uh, and that's particularly uh, true in the tropics, where we where a lot of the, the temperature changes, where you're really going to weather extremes, much higher temperatures, much drier environments. The the traditional crops that would have been grown in those regions are going to be much harder to grow, and perhaps we need to be thinking about different new crops or adapting those existing crops to those more extreme uh, conditions. Does that sort of mean, therefore, if I've understood correctly, that globally we'll be able to produce pretty much the same stuff, maybe in the same quantities, but where that will be produced will be different? That's certainly one way of adapting to climate change. Um, when you look at the current projections, Northern Europe does actually really well. Like wheat productivity actually goes up uh, because you just have a longer growing season. So it's not a simple scenario where it's harder to grow crops um, across, everywhere around the globe. It's, it's much more uh, a local effect that the climate is changing locally and the crops that we grow there may be affected positively but also negatively. And it really depends on the region that you're talking about. Giles, can I ask you a question? I'm curious, do you know about what, what the projections are for crops that are more water intensive? Um, as opposed to, to responding to changing temperatures? Well, I guess something like rice in California, where you're producing an awful lot of 
um, rice for export, that doesn't look like a very viable uh, long-term solution. California, we're seeing, is experiencing pretty significant uh, climate change. Uh, it's one of the places at the front end of that change. Uh, and a lot of the productivity in the Central Valley of California is reliant on an awful lot of uh, irrigation water, so rice, and also, but also the almond, large amounts of almond production in California. These are the sort of, yeah, I think those are the areas where, you know, anticipating uh, one area of change that is happening in California changes to precipitation that's almost certainly going to affect the ability to grow these crops that are very dependent on the availability of irrigation water. I'd like to sort of take that further. I think your point about farmers is actually central and the ability to take the farmer along that journey and to travel that journey with farmers is really important and I think one of the reasons, and I know people are going to say, oh, you're going to say millets again, but the reason millets are interesting <laughs> is because they use less water and can withstand more temperature. And I'm not in any way saying replace wheat and rice by millets, but it's trying to understand these options and that fact that, you know, millets go from temperate to tropical regions and, and trying to think about farmers globally as a community, since we don't know where we're going to produce the wheat or the rice going forward to think about alliances with farmers where that knowledge is shared because the risk is a shared risk, but that is also a possibility of trying to get better schemes so that the food system doesn't break any further. I don't know so, if you think that's pie in the sky, but over to you. Absolutely not. I, I mean, that, I mean that's really already happening. So places like the Crop Science Centre and NIAB here in Cambridge, um, the NIAB in particular, are looking at new varieties of crops. So one thing they're testing is soybean. It'd be great to have a hot, good protein-based crop that we can grow in the UK. We don't have it. Um, and soybean is a very effective crop in the Americas. Uh, but the, the climate in the UK is not particularly good for soybean, but you can breed soybean to uh, have uh, to, to cope with the shorter growing um, season and perhaps also to be adapted to the, the temperature, the, the colder temperatures at either end, the start and the end of the growing season. So it's very likely or very possible that we can develop a soybean that you can grow and can be pretty productive in the UK. Um, so, I, you know, I, or there are a number of organizations um, around the world that are looking at specific crops in specific regions and adapting those primarily through breeding to create new opportunities for new crops as, as we experience a changing climate. And I suspect in 10 or 10 years time, we probably will see quite a lot of soybean production in the UK. So so at, at risk of, of um, hearing about millet again, um, <laughs> how else will climate, uh, sorry, that was really cool, I didn't mean that. How else will climate change impact what and how we can eat? So we've talked a little bit about some of the particular crops, but in a broader sense, what sort of changes can we expect to see to our diet as a result of climate change? Can I just make the point about water? I just want to pick up that. I'll link it to yeah. the question. But Helen, I think you raised a huge issue. I mean, of course, uh, the carbon footprint is a major concern, but the water footprint is also a huge issue. And I think one of the, the thing is going to be there's going to be water wars about who's got the right to take water to produce what kind of food. So Singapore produces uh, only 10% of its food at the moment. It imports 90% and it can afford to do that because it's producing other goods, but it's recognized this and it says, 
30 by 30, that's a plan. So 30% of its food is going to grow through vertical agriculture. So growing it in a very non-traditional way in Singapore by 2030. So I think we're going to see changes where either countries make a decision that they're going to produce uh, food because there's food insecurity. And I think I was triggered by what Jared said this year over the lockdown, we've been buying you know, vegetables and fruits in different ways and I've been trying to source them locally. And I was delighted to find local chickpea grown you know, in East Anglia, which I could purchase. So some of it's already happening. I think that I mean, going to this point that Shalaja made about farmers, you know, farmers are actually, pre they're not stuck in their ways. They really are looking, many farmers looking to innovate um, they are um, open to new crops and to testing new ideas. Um, and I think that's great. You know, we want a, a farming community that's um, adapting to the changing climate. But I think one of the biggest challenges for the farmer is risk. And climate change really increases risk. So what the biggest problem, for, I think, for farming with climate change is you don't know how much rain you're gonna get. It's much less predictable. You might get way too much and your field is flooded. You might, like this year, have a very, very dry spring. And our productivity in the UK for wheat has been awful this year. And it's because we had that beautiful, hot, dry spring that we all were enjoying in the first lockdown. It was awful, bad, bad news for the farmers um, because there just wasn't enough water at the early start, at the beginning of the season. Um, and that, variability is very hard to manage for the farmers um, and that risk is something that's uh, 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 difficult and it's you know it's difficult for farmers in the UK it's even more challenging for a smallholder farmer in Africa where you could have a complete drought and lose the to almost the totality of your your crop so how farmers manage that risk is I think going to be one of the biggest challenges going forward and Helen is there perhaps anything um, from history, looking back, although of course I imagine climate change is, is now, climate change today is unlike anything I suspect that we've seen in recent history. I hope I'm correct in saying that. But is there anything that we can learn looking back over the past couple of hundred years about how climate change might impact um, our relationship with food? I don't know that I have a, a, a clear vision um, of, of how history offers us lessons. Just listening to uh, Sharaja and, and Giles here, I think it, it sounds like one of the things that we maybe need to anticipate or, or think about is the way in which um, predictability uh, goes, goes down as climate fluctuations go up. And so, we very much have created industrial systems that you know rely on uh, inputs being standardized in particular ways and maybe the same kinds of things coming in year after year on schedule right the when we we think about the kinds of foods we're used to seeing at the grocery store and how even from you know the referring again to the lockdown experience, how distressing it is to to arrive at the grocery store and and some see something's not there, but maybe the idea is that in the future we might get more used to uh, fluctuations in the kinds of things that are available, uh, instead of demanding that there be um, the same kinds of rice year in year out or having you know, inputs into more processed food products be exactly the same. But that less predictability is going to affect price. 
probably more than anything, food will become more expensive if it's, if it's harder to be consistently produced at the same levels. We saw that in um, uh, 2007 when uh, wheat prices were went way up. We, we saw riots, food riots in Egypt in particular, for instance, that uh, really affected the political landscape. Um, and I anticipate that that's probably we're just seeing the start of things to come, that um, the, the stability of food prices is not going to stay the same. We've, we've, we've been in a long period of reducing the cost of food going down. I don't see that going forwards, coping with climate change, we're going to be able to maintain that constant reduction in food prices. And in fact, I would expect a lot more fluctuations. I think, Giles, that's a really important point. And I think it might also be a standstill moment, a lockdown, we stand still in terms of thinking about what are the more appropriate prices and should we not signal something that's high water use and something you want to grow? And of course, it might be delicious. You know, we might grow mangoes in the, in the UK. We have European mangoes being sold at the moment. But the water demand, the other demands, people should how do we signal to consumers as well that this is something valuable, therefore you pay a greater price? It's a huge shift from the, the, the past where, at least over the last 50 years, we've produced more, but it's producing at a cheaper level. And I think that is not taking into account the full cost of the inputs. And of course, we've already said they're not necessarily the best kinds of inputs going forward. But I think changing the way we think about the, the price of food and Helen, I might be wrong, but is it not case that we're the case that we're spending far less as a percentage of our total income in the 20th century, the end of the 20th century and now than we were in the 19th century? I'm not saying that you know we should be hungry again, but changing the way we think as consumers, the way we spend our disposable income. Yeah, that is absolutely the case that we spend far less now uh, as a percentage of, of income, for example, here here in the UK um, than, than in the past. Absolutely. And I think it's important. We haven't really talked about things like grocery stores and the, the ways in which uh, here here in Britain we, we, we get our food, um, most of us, most of the time, uh, and the effect that these kinds of sales outlets have had on 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 driving and reorganizing the food system and so there's actually ways other than crop scientists and farmers that we might think about um, influencing the actors who influence what our food looks like and and how we get it i i totally agree with that i mean i feel like as, as the crop scientists you know we we are working hard to optimize the productivity systems and drive up the sustainability of the system and also having huge impacts on that cost of food production and bringing the, the cost of food production down but um, closely related to that cost to the reduction in the food prices has been an awful lot more waste and that's in part the consumer, but a lot of it is just how the food is, is sold. So we're used to our shelves being completely full at the supermarket. And uh, that to have our shelves completely full of all the selection means that there's always a large amount of that food is going to waste. We have about 30% of the food we're producing is going to waste. Um, and, you know, I, 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 
as we look forwards to a more unstable climate, a larger population, a more demanding population, I really hope we can find a way to not just at the bottom end of it, where the crop scientists sit, improve the way we, we can grow the food, but also reduce the amount of waste that we're producing at the, at the other end uh, from, the, from the retailers and the consumers. It's not just having, oh, I was just going to say, it's not just having full uh, shelves that are full, but also uh, fruit that is perfect, vegetables that are unblemished, this kind of thing. And I think, if I may, it's also that we only use one part of the plants and we throw the rest away, whereas previously they would have been part of the system. So wheat, uh, we would have used the, 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 the stalk to actually, you know, thatch our roofs. And we, we don't seem to understand that the plant system could be far more effective. So we could do more with less if we, we rethought some of those features. OK, so we've just been hearing about how we're not getting the most out of the crops we are able to grow now yet another form of waste. And it sounds like soon, climate change is going to make it much harder to grow certain crops where we're used to growing them. This is especially true in tropical climates. The thing is, as we're learning, different places will be affected differently by climate change. And this is just as true when it comes to crops. And the National Institute of Agricultural Botany, that's NIAB if you're down with the plant scientists, which I definitely am, um, and the Crop Science Centre in Cambridge, they're looking at ways to develop new varieties of crops that can be grown in challenging climates, like soybeans in the UK. Healthy soybeans, though, not those sickly soybeans from earlier. So how is climate change going to affect our diet? Well, firstly, we're probably going to end up eating more locally grown foods as farmers look for ways to adapt to the challenges and risk imposed by climate change. For example, Shaila just said that Singapore, which only produces 10% of its food at the moment, is hoping to grow 30% of its food through vertical agriculture by 2030, which means growing food on uh, vertically inclined surfaces or stacked layers. Horizontal agriculture is so 2020. Another issue we'll have to contend with soon is that our industrial and economic systems rely on things staying pretty much the same year on year. So we might have to get used to more variability in the availability of certain foods. And this could affect food prices. Exactly. The cost of food has been falling for quite some time now, but this will get harder to continue as climate change kicks in. Maybe we should be making clear just how expensive certain foods are. From a climate perspective, think about water-hungry almonds or rice grown in California. Maybe these should be labelled so that people know exactly what they're paying for or what the costs are in CO2 or water, like Hugh talked about with the idea of a carbon footprint plane ticket in episode two. Can't we just, I don't know, ask scientists to work this one out for us? You know, bring down the cost of producing food, pretty please? Um, I'm not really sure that's how it works. I'm just going to jump in here and you've sort of touched around the subject and I think I'm just building off this last point but we've sort of talked about like the costs of inputs and risks and productivity the price of food carbon footprint you've talked about everything so much and it's been great but thinking of the future now this is a scale and a sort of population question really that we Giles has sort of touched on is there like going forward, is there sort of going to be a shortfall between what we produce now and what we will need to produce by 2050, say, based on an increasing population? I do think there's a bit of a perfect storm um, coming where the population is continuing to expand. Most of that 
the future population expansion uh, is going to be in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, associated with that very significant population growth has also been an increase in wealth. And as people become more wealthy, they start eating more meat. And so a shift in diets. So we've got more people who have bigger demands on the system uh, because their diets are changing. And that's all happening at the same time as climate change is happening. So it, it is hard to imagine how we cope with all of those factors come 20, 50 over the next 30 years. I think there are some fantastic opportunities. Uh, and I, I do think there's some fantastic opportunities to drive up the sustainability of the agricultural system so that agriculture is contributing less to climate change. But the, the challenge is, how do you drive up sustainability in the system while also maintaining the high level of productivity while actually even increasing that productivity to meet the increasing demand from the population and coping with climate change? It is going to be a challenging 30 years for those of us who work in agriculture. And if I could just add there, I think in another important piece of that or, or something that I would say is central to it is, is addressing global inequities, right? Um, oh, and that and that uh, rising standards and, and, and rising demands uh, on the food system uh, are, are the ability to meet those are, are, are well, there's differentiation uh, across, across the globe, but then also within societies. And we really need to be um, addressing issues of, of inequity at the same time that we're thinking about meeting these challenges. I completely agree with you, Helen. I actually think in that regard, there's a huge opportunity because 70% of the world's poorest people are smallholder farmers and they get most of their income from the farm. But for the average smallholder farmer in sub-Saharan Africa, they're producing 15, 20% of the potential productivity of their farm. So there's a real fantastic opportunity here to both address the need for food, but also to drive up the uh, productivity of those farms and provide a route out of poverty. I think there is a real great opportunity. And, uh, and in some ways, when you look at the whole global system, it's much harder in the UK here where we're achieving 80 to 90% of the potential productivity of the farm to raise that product to do further. But for a smallholder farmer who's getting such low yields, you've got loads of opportunities to raise up their productivity and also provide them a route out, out of that poverty. I think, Giles, you're absolutely right. But I'd like to add that inequities in countries between the middle classes who are consuming a lot more meat and what the farmers can produce is also a point that we can engage with. So the middle class is also excited in new ideas. So if there's a global as well as middle class idea across countries that eating well is important, then there's an emulation effect. Other people want to emulate and the farmers can sell. Hence the quinoa story, which went globally and is also something that middle class in, in emerging countries, countries in the middle, the Brazils, the Indias, the Chinas are also looking at more than they would have before. But there's also this issue of inequity among rural. So while they're smallholders, and that's really important, they're also landless labor who are at the bottom of that pyramid as well. And how we conceive of the rural as a diversified agriculture where we do the processing as well within the system adds value. So you have the increase of productivity of the crop, but associated with that, the value creation so that there's more income held in the rural economy. So I think inequities within country and also within sector are worth bringing into the 
Exactly. And if I can just follow up on that, what could we perhaps do to try and innovate and support in this sense? So if there were possible solutions that would help reduce those inequities you just mentioned, you know, what could we try and do to support those? Well, one of the, the biggest problems for smallhold farmers in Africa is that they don't have uh, access to inorganic fertilizers. That's one of the main reasons why their productivity is so low. They can't afford to buy the inorganic fertilizers that we rely on here. So the research that we're doing is trying to find alternative routes to deliver those nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, in a manner that's independent of the application of inorganic fertilizers, and to put those technologies in the seeds. So there's already the microorganisms in the soil that can deliver those nutrients. We just need to have the crop plants um, engaging with those microorganisms and accessing their nutrients through that route. And in the research that we're doing, we're trying to see what systems exist in, in countries where there are traditional systems of using. And as both Helen and Giles have said, to then bring it up to the technological level, because without a doubt, we need to increase productivity, but making explicit the link between food system and health systems. Because we've tended to think as, as people who are in the academic world in silos, and each discipline quite rightly is thinking of what we can do best. But returning to the real world where food and health are, are closely related, but we have in the last hundred years, they've separated themselves out. Bringing uh, that back, closing the circle is something that's extremely important if we are going to, by 2050, have a more equitable system. Yeah, I think I would add to that um, beyond the, the research that we do, we need to be making demands from, from national and, and international leaders and institutions to put in place the governance that makes it possible for, for example, for far, small farmers to survive bad seasons. Um, we, need, we, need, we need good governance in addition to scientific research um, in, in many different ways, I think kind of too many to, too many to list. I, I'd like to pick up on that point that Helen made that really it is, there's many disciplines involved in here. You know, I see, feel like I sit at one end, the very far end of the spectrum developing the crop plants. And there's no, there, I don't think we're going to have a silver bullet there. We can help in the whole system, but every, uh, there's steps along the way in, in, in the agronomy, how we grow the crops, um, and, but also in how we um, sell the food, in how the consumers engage with their food systems. I think all of it's going to contribute to finding those solutions. So it really is a multidisciplinary problem that uh, we have to engage for all the way from the scientists at the bottom end, all the way through to the policymakers, as Helen highlighted. Giles, you just mentioned silver bullets, and I'm not asking for silver bullets here, but just a sort of thinking of the future, what sort of fuels hope and what are the sort of reasons that we can you know be optimistic i feel that we've been overly reliant on the chemistry industry to solve the problems in agriculture but what in my lifetime as a as a biologist i've just i've experienced a revolution in biology i mean it's driven by many factors but you know, the ability to sequence genomes and just to understand the totality of the gene content of any number of species and now even within species, the diversity that exists, it really increases what we can do in biology. 
Um, I believe that we're really on the cusp of a biological revolution in agriculture, where we can use that amazing genetic diversity that's present in, in our plants, um, not just our crop plants, but more broadly, and bring all of that genetic diversity to the fore in our agriculture. And if we really bring, bring that to the fore, I think we can find much, much more sustainable ways to produce our foods. For instance, reducing the reliance on inorganic fertilizers. But in fact, I think we can turn the whole system around. Right now, the system, we're pouring a lot of chemicals into the system. They're getting out into the environment. They're not supporting the soil um, very well. So the system is emitting carbon and emitting nitrogen and emitting all these greenhouse gases, releasing nutrients into our um, biodiverse environments and having negative impacts in that regard. Um, so I think we can be very ambitious about how we can change the whole agricultural system to be an awful lot more productive by relying on the natural processes that already exist in existence in the, in the plant world, um, rather than being so dependent on the chemical industry to deliver our problems. I think what's really uh, fascinating is that this is a moment where we can look back to look forward uh, without necessarily going back. And I think uh, what is clear is while we would, can worry that the food system is broken, it's also an opportunity to put the parts together. And we know there's lots of exciting ways in which as you said at the outset, food is at the core of human life and we all like talking and eating about food. And for me, that's the amazing feature at the moment, the, the slow food movement, the understanding of different kinds of food. Helen made a really important point. At one level, there's a huge diversity in what we eat. If we can link that excitement that we have in the global north about these things, the repositories of the knowledge, the seeds, but the communities as well are in the global south. And while Giles is right, I mean, there is food hunger and we need to resolve it. There's also a really important idea. If food is human life, we need to value the humans who are part of that living system. And in that sense, using what communities have uh, provides a way to link that system together. So my current research is with all sorts of people, plant scientists, but also archaeologists who are doing things like mapping traditional systems, what we call the intangible heritage. A food is important because it reminds you of all sorts of things in your past or in your community. So we bring that excitement back in. And I think we need to ensure that food stays a subject of a debate. So I'm inviting myself onto another podcast in five years, if you like. But I think for me, that's the core. Yeah, I would very much agree with that perspective. I think if there's a if there's a hope, it's that um, at least with respect to food systems uh, close to home here, that that some of the excitement and awareness about food and its possibilities might uh, create opportunities that that didn't exist even in the in the recent past to diversify what we what we do. Um, and, and therefore what, what consumers can find. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the British grown chickpeas that were mentioned earlier, um, at least the ones that I get are from a company that specializes in um, diverse, diversifying beans and other crops that are, that are grown locally. Um, and so I think it, it might be the case that you wouldn't have been able to a decade ago or, or 20 years ago at the, maybe the sort of, um, a different point uh, in the in the history of industrial food here, you might not have been able to find some of those things, but in, there are 
increasing possibilities. Um, and, and maybe that's a sign that things are moving in a direction where we can think differently. So, we started off this episode by thinking about how food is such an important part of human existence. And then we started to talk about how our food production is being threatened by global warming. Plus, there's our own technological developments, which in the face of global warming actually might make our food production more variable and damage the environment in the process. So, thinking of industrialised agriculture, the lack of genetic diversity among our crops, and the use of inorganic fertiliser. Well, in the face of this perfect storm, as Giles called it, is it too much to hope that this might also be an opportunity to try and work out that itsy-bitsy problem of global inequality? By the way, that film ruined my ability to travel on boats. Well, 70% of the world's poorest people are smallholder farmers who get most of their income from their farms. Science could help these farmers increase their productivity. For example, Giles is finding ways of growing crops efficiently without needing to use inorganic fertilizers. You should know by now that those are the non-poo fertilizers. By helping plants work with natural microorganisms living in the soil to get more nutrients from their surroundings. And Shailaja was keen to point out that there is a close link between food and health. So if we can re-diversify diets globally, then that might have a positive impact on human health. And Helen reminded us that we need to demand that governments around the world help with inequality too. Once again, science can't solve everything for us. I had been holding back, but dare I say that there's no silver bullet? Yep, you went there. But there are reasons to be optimistic. Uh, one of the things Shailaja and Helen told us is that even just getting people thinking and talking and excited about food really helps, which I guess is great news. Yes, so hopefully if we're thinking more about what we're eating, we can devote some of that thinking energy into developing more sustainable eating habits, like eating local with British grown chickpeas, an example of what's becoming possible these days. Nick, millet came up quite a bit. Ever, I, ever tried it? I took part in this entire conversation. I'll be honest, I've kind of forgotten about millet. I'm pretty sure millet is what we used to feed our budgies when I was a kid. That's what I was thinking. I always thought it was bird food. But <laughs> I must be totally wrong. <laughs> it must be in so many foods, apparently. I mean, I don't know. Now I feel like I didn't take part in a conversation. I suspect there are some things that birds eat that we too can eat, like millet. I agree, you know... Um, they eat corn. Do they, they eat corn, don't they? I'm not, you're not talking about the fat balls we put out in the winter, are you? I don't want to eat those. Who puts out fat balls for birds? Is it just like, <laughs> balls of fat? No, they're like, I don't know what, what it's in them, but they're like, they feed your local blue tit and robin and stuff like that. I don't know what's in it. It's probably no, not locally sourced and I'm having a... <laughs> locally sourced guilt well, trip right now because we just you know the birds in our garden we just say fend for yourselves don't give them anything let alone spheres of fat yeah i think you just walk into a shop and go can i have a sphere of fat to feed the bird i think what you can, apart from weird looks they might just part, point you to the bird seed aisle on aisle nine but i don't know i remember that song isn't it in um Mary Poppins, come feed the birds, feed them balls of fat. That's how the lyrics went, no? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what will we be talking about next time? Well, in the next episode, 
We'll talk with Richard Staley. My name's Richard Staley. Sarah Dillon. Hello, uh, I'm Sarah Dillon. And Martin Rees. Well, I'm Martin Rees. About why it has taken so long for climate change to be taken seriously. I am looking forward to it as ever. In the meantime, I'm off to research some sustainable cookie recipes. Ideally ones made entirely from millet. There's that millet again. So, while James does that, please like and subscribe to Mind Over Chatter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Make sure to leave us a review. A good one, please. And as ever, don't forget to tell your friends, family, local politicians, and each and every member of parliament individually, one at a time. Basically, just tell everyone you know. A huge thanks once again to our guests, Giles Oldroyd, Shyla Jaffenel, and Helen Ann Coey. And as ever, to Naomi Clements Broad for production and general lurking. Music was by Carlo Ladd and artwork by Alex Sadler. <laughs>